How's it going, everybody? Welcome on into the Check Your Brain podcast here on Patreon. If you're listening on Patreon, it's going out on Monday, August 22nd. If you're listening for free, whether wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, everything, you'll have your opportunity to listen to that for free on Wednesday. But if you're listening for free, go to patreon.com slash Tony Mazer and check out the podcast. I usually post about four podcasts a week of my rants and ravings. Uh, and then sometimes I have a guest on and sometimes I have some pretty good guests on. And this is one of them today. This is Michael Graves. And a lot of, you know, Michael Graves. And he was at one time the lead singer of the Misfits. And for the last 20 plus years, he's been on his own, whether it's in bands or his solo tour, has uh, put out so many great songs and uh, is a true artist. And uh, you know, and we'll we'll get to a lot of the other stuff that uh, I guess has caused some kind of backlash or controversy uh, over the years. But I I've really loved your whole body of work and uh, just and listening to some of your stories and going to see you last year on your storytelling tour and hearing the back background of a lot of your music of who some of these figures are and putting it into a band like the Misfits, for example, somebody who a group that's an iconic group that you're replacing, so to speak, somebody who's very, but you also brought some fresh perspective into a band that was, I guess, is so influential at one time. And you have a lot of people that will talk about the, the eras of the Misfits. And there's a lot of people who say that, yeah, no, I prefer the second era of the Misfits because of Michael Graves and what he was able to do. So it's it, thank you so much for doing this and being on the podcast. And uh, uh, it, it honestly it was great to go see that live show that you did last year. And uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to whenever you come around my neck of the woods again. Well, thank you very much. What a gracious and honoring intro that was. I, I appreciate it very much. Um, I'm looking forward to, to our conversation. So, you know, as in, inquire away. Absolutely. Well, it, it's funny because when you think of a band like the Misfits that was a they became a household name because of a lot of imagery and where you would see somebody wearing a Misfits shirt was the same way you would see someone wearing a Ramones T-shirt. And I'm thinking, name, name me two songs, name me two Misfits songs, name me two Ramones. And, and right. I'm by the way, I'm starting to see that with Gen Z now they're wearing like David Bowie shirts. Name me, yeah. name me one David Bowie song. But yeah. you would see that. And uh, I guess James Hetfield from Metallica helped put the Misfits on the map by wearing their his, their shirts back in the early 80s when they were really kind of making it big. And, you know, you're somebody that a lot of that music uh, from American Psycho, uh, you're a, you're really, really young and how iconic it became. But that really was your first big quote unquote big boy band how did you for, for a lot of people who don't know how did you get picked to be in the misfits well i was at the right place at the right time so to speak i i got picked because i auditioned and i was i i impressed jerry and the other folks that were that were looking at me but there was always there was always uncertainty about about picking somebody because choosing your singer is is a big deal and and Doyle especially was very very rock headed uh, about 
committing, making the commitment. There was, there was always talk about Glenn may be coming back. Davanian's name was thrown around all the time that Davanian was interested and he was going to come out. At one point, the Misfits took out at an ad in, in the newspaper here on the East coast. Um, and, and when that got out and word got out that Jerry was recording all of, of the, of the auditions, like come down and play, play with the Misfits and, audition and, and we'll give you a tape everybody was walking out of there with a tape all you had to do is bring your own cassette tape um so there was like hundreds of people showed up from all over the place and um so i just kept at it man you know i, I kept at it and the story goes that now i i i auditioned in in uh march of 1994 so by the time october rolled around you know, Halloween, the, the Misfits had to make a decision about their singer if they were going to launch. If not, they were going to have to wait another year in order for that because you have to, the Misfits have to come out on Halloween. That that just, you know, it can't they can't come out on Thanksgiving. That's just stupid. Yeah, it's like you're, you're like Trans-Siberian Orchestra around Christmas. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So so Halloween's coming up and Ken Creedy, who was the, the manager of Typo Negative at the time, called these guys up and said if you guys are going to launch or you guys should launch on halloween uh and typo negative is inviting you to come out during the encore part of their sold out show in roseland ballroom in new york city on halloween on halloween night and so jerry was like yes let's do this um the only problem is we don't have any singer we don't have a singer um, you, you know, and so they said, so they said, they asked if Pete would do it, if Pete Steele would do it. They asked Pete, Pete said, I'd love to do it. I'll sing with you guys, but I don't know any of the songs. So they asked me to come and teach Pete Steele the songs that they were going to do. It was like, I think it was like maybe five songs, Halloween, Horror Business, Martian, Skulls. And then I think like Die, Die, My Darling, something like that. Um, so we all go to Brooklyn and I start and, and, and we start playing and I start teaching Pete these songs and he stops everybody in, in the middle of this rehearsal. And he says that, you know, pointing to me, he says, this is your singer. You, you got to give the, the gig to this kid. He's he's great. He sings these songs uh, better than anybody. Um, and you're like room. 19, 20 years old here. I, yeah. At, the, at this point, I, I was 20. Uh, I, yeah, I was 20 years old freaking out because I, I was a huge type of negative fan i wasn't much of a, a misfits fan you know i knew the music because I, I i you know heard a lot of punk music so i was like oh, all right you know I, I know that song but typo negative i was a huge typo negative fan so yeah so it was just crazy it was just all really really crazy the way that it came together and and that's really how i got in 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 the misfits it's it's so incredible because you know you I've heard you talk about now I'd, I'd like to hear your background of some because it's interesting hearing Saturday Night and Dig Up Her Bones and Descending Angel and you're writing these I think you were in high school you wrote some of these or uh, like right after and all of a sudden you're joining because and, and there had to have been immense pressure where you at least had Sammy Hagar when he's joining Van Halen that 
look, I can hold my own. I'm Sammy Hagar. Yeah. I already did. I can't drive 55. I'm just joining a new band. You're a kid. And there's a lot. The, you go to a misfit show and these are people that are purists and they want if you're going to put do their music, you need to do it the way the fans really want. And yeah. you come in there. But and this is just my perspective, but you brought a fresh perspective to a band that was already iconic. And that's where I think a lot of people look back in that era. And you look up Dig Up Her Bones, the official video on YouTube. It has, you know, 10, I think it has like 50 plus million views because a lot of people that was their introduction introduction to the Misfits. You know, there were times you couldn't find you go to a record store and you try to find cassette tapes of old Misfits shows and uh, or stu studio albums. There wasn't a large body of work by then. So then by the time you join after all the settlements between Jerry and Glenn and everything that you have this. Uh, so now you have to deliver. And again, you're 20, 21, 22 years old and you really don't want to disappoint. You are a kid in those essentially. Yeah, it was crazy. I, I was a kid. I, I don't I didn't realize how immature I was, at, you know, because you're not that that's a, a necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying as a, you know, a 20 year old, as opposed to a 31, 32 year old or a 40 year old man who has children. Uh, I, yeah, I had I had just gotten out of high school. Um you know, I, I, I was I was still trying to figure out all the stuff that a 20 year old figures out where most people are going off to college and and doing that sort of thing with with their life. I had just joined the Misfits and and all of what you just said is true about the, the fans and 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 the legacy of the band. And now here I am in the middle of it all um, with no one looking out for me with me just making the, these decisions about things and just going on the whims of what other people are, are, are saying in this huge world, you know, all of a sudden I'm looking to my left and Marilyn Manson is right there. And then I look to my right, you know, Dave Mustaine is sitting there and he's playing with my, you know, and there's just all this crazy world and Metallica's coming backstage and they're asking me if it's cool, if we play die, die, my darling with you, Hey man, can we sing last caress with you? I'm like, you're Metallica. You can do anything you want right now. You know, you're James Hetfield. Um, so yeah, man, it 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 was crazy. Um, it it was it was crazy. And it was very, very overwhelming. And which is why it ended the way that it did. You know, I, I should have I I never should have gone home that night. I sh never should have walked away uh from that band in or in orlando I, I should never have done it but i didn't know what else to do um you know things were just it was it was it was just crazy and i didn't know who to call i i didn't have i didn't have anybody in my life um that could help me steer the the ship and 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 keep my head on straight and it had done a great deal of mental damage to me not only the things that I was dealing with in the band, but the things that I was dealing with in my own personal life. You know, at this point, I was just what I really felt like was just a resource that was being mined because I was this young man. I was tapped into the zeitgeist. I was writing these profound songs. I had this body of work even beforehand as a young man that was, you know, I, I was I was essential and I was making people a lot of money, but nobody cared 
about me. I mean, you know, they, they cared about me staying and, and doing the things that I needed to do in order to make the, the ship roll forward. So, um, so yeah, it, it was, it was a crazy time. I, I was definitely, definitely, unpre- I was prepared as a musician, as an artist, I was great, but there was a lot that, that really, um, rolled over me. Because I noticed that going doing research for the interview and and seeing old interviews from the you know nineteen ninety six ninety seven all the way to ninety nine when Famous Monsters came out, where even though you're the lead singer of the band, you're almost it almost seemed like you weren't the face. It's just my vision of it. You weren't the face. It was Jerry. It was Doyle. Is you were just kind of hey, I'm here for the ride. Kind of how you look at how Alice in Chains is now, where William Duvall is doing a lot of the Lane Staley parts. But let's yeah. be honest, it's Jerry Cantrell and the band. And it seemed to me that you were just kind of there and doing your justice for the old Misfit songs, and then you're writing the new stuff. But it seemed like because Jerry has, you know, had, had the hair and, you know, Doyle is, you know, built like a Greek god that he, they were kind of the, the the mainstays of the band and you were just like that. So when you look back, do you feel any, I don't want to say regret, but mm. do you feel that you didn't appreciate it enough as, as much as you could that you can look back and say, look, I should just sit back. And as you mentioned, you're there with Metallica, you're there with Megadeth and to sit back and go, boy, this is the life right now. Uh, like, do you look at your younger self in your early 20s and say, Yes. And if I just if I just sat yes. there and just took it all in instead, I'm like, yeah, well, I got a gig and I have the, this is what I do, because, again, you're in your early 20s and we all we all do things that either we regret or we wish could be a little bit done better in those days. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's a certain truth. I don't I don't dis- disagree with that, that that. I think that there's a certain amount of truth in that. Um, I was certainly blown away by all of it and and I, I i i did really take in the enormity of it because i i never uh had a, a big ego to be like you know oh well of course i'm of course i'm hanging out with you mr manson you know of course i'm hanging out with um so i was just always like, oh my god i, I think where i went I think where I, I went off the rails is that I, I was because the nature of an artist is, is an emotional one. I, I am, am a very emotional person by nature. So a lot of my emotions would would steer me towards decision in my decision making process. So as a young man, which a lot of young people do, you base your decisions on emotions instead of being objective about it, waiting for those emotions to calm down and say, all right, let me take an actual look at this situation or this problem that I'm dealing with and make the right decisions about it. You know, my thing was just, was like, you know, I'm just not getting on the plane. Fuck you. I'm just going to, I'm going to hang up. You're not going to be able to get me on the phone. I'm not getting on the plane. See ya. Like that's not a mature way to deal with stuff. And, and so here I was, I was like that. And there was no one that in my life that was able to pull me aside and go, calm down, dude. You know, let's talk about this. What's going on. You know, let's look long-term Jerry, come sit down and talk to him instead of, you know, so, so it's, it's, it was like that. Um, 
it's it's hard for me. I'll be honest with you, bro. It's hard for me to look back at that run with the misfits and and not be critical of a lot of the things that I did. I understand now a lot more so the responsibility that um that I had and and the, and the shortcomings that and then and the things that I didn't I didn't live up to. You know, but it's easy to do that. And that's that's a life lesson really for 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 anybody. Um you know, my dad always you, my 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 dad gave me this this phrase when I was very, very young and I'll give to to you and, and your audience. And it was if the queen had balls, she'd be the king. Right. So that. it's not like I knew at the time that 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 these things that were I, I, the decisions I was making were going to affect my life the way that they did. So and and in working with young people, I often as well impart on them. And, and it's something that I I work at in my life as well you can't get mired down in in the past you know you can look at in the rearview mirror all day long i could do that all day long and be critical and just say you know if i had just stayed that night i'd be rich you know i'd be on a tour bus and there'd be all these things and my life would be different yeah but maybe not because if the queen had balls then she she'd be the 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 king and that's what that's what's interesting you say that because I me talking to you right now I for 15 plus years I worked in radio. I was a radio yeah. guy and uh especially during all the covid stuff I had to start a podcast. I had to do something and you know talking politics and and also doing stand up comedy and interviewing people. It was it was a lot of fun to do for a bit and I ended up getting let go from my radio station because I had a podcast that was controversial. And yeah. I, you know I look back on that and say if I only went back and said, maybe I could have edited a little bit or just completely deleted it, said that wasn't a good podcast, I'd still be working right now. Instead, right. I have a day job and I'm doing podcasting when I can, like you're on a Sunday. And if I only did this, if I only did that, but our decisions that we make or or, or some that we don't make lead to different, you know, what we do now. And then you'll always kind of have those memories. And uh, it's right. it's an interesting life. And especially for you that, you know, for the you've been doing solo stuff. You've been in uh, your own bands uh, for the last what tw twenty two years now. And um, are, are you so? So when I got to see you last year at doing the acoustic show and the storytelling, what do you prefer, or is it like a certain time in your life? Do you prefer being a, a solo act, or do you like being with a band and playing with that full set and putting the makeup on and everything? I I, I enjoy it all. I, I really do. It's it different. It, the different presentation, the, the, the different performances uh, use a totally different use different parts of the skill set that I, ha I have as an artist. I really, really enjoy the the acoustic performances when it's just keyed down and I'm able to communicate more with with my audience. When the when we step back when and you were saying that when you were doing when you were doing research for for our conversation that it, that in the interviews it, it was almost like I was third wheel and I just kind of sat back and and it was just a, a Jerry Doyle thing uh when when we first started and and there was no new music that was fine with me I was fine with taking a, the third wheel but once American Psycho came out and as we were doing that and getting more and more interviews and people asking questions about 
the music and, and and things like that. I was I never had the opportunity to answer and and talk about the band and the music through my eyes. I was writing this music, Dig Upper Bones, as you indicated, and which is true. I wrote Dig Upper Bones when I was in high school. I was 16 years old. I didn't even have a license yet. I wrote that song. And and it, and it was one of the singles off the album. So was American Psycho. I pushed those guys to call the album American Psycho. Um, I crafted that music and, and pushed the band in a, in a direction for a reason. Those lyrics mean something and meant something to me and to the young people. Um, and so I was... I felt like I had something to say. I did step back and in the beginning of the band, but then it was just, you know, I was just, I was like Forrest Gump, you know, I was just kind of like in the back, like, Hey, you know, <laughs> you know, someone just asked a question about dig upper bones and, and, and Jerry just runs the gambit um, with, with, with the answer. Um, and, and so I, I was feeling very, very, overlooked as as an artist and and so i've always had that in me to where i want to communicate about my music and communicate about the things that are on my mind and my world view through the things that i'm that i'm doing um but i love being theatrical and putting the makeup on with a whole band and rocking out and raising it to that level and of performance and athleticism and um so yeah i i I'm a creative, so I just I love being in that space and I love being in that headspace. Yeah, that's uh, I, I haven't gotten a chance to see you with the full band. I'm, I'm only 34, so I wasn't going to concerts in the 90s. But uh, it was one of those cases where I've seen the Misfits a couple of times. In fact, I've interviewed Jerry and uh, when Des Cadinos with, was with the group. And um, then I got to see them at an award show where they brought uh, Andy Bierzak from Black Veil Brides mm -hmm. to sing. And uh, I'm like, well, that's he's no uh, he's no Michael Graves. I'll tell you that much and right? messed up the lyrics a few times. But uh, it's what I guess looking back, what's your do you still have a, a relationship at all with the guys? Uh, is it cordial at all or is it uh, like, hey, that was once our lead singer and now he's not anymore. So hey, if we see each other in passing, we're, we're fine. Or what's uh, how's that going? I think it's more of that. You know, I, I have Jerry and Doyle's phone number in, in my phone and um, Doyle and I at times trade pleasantries. Hey, how you doing? Or maybe we saw someone that it, we mutually know, um, you know, he he uh, he raised his daughter and his his daughter and, and my niece went to the same high school. So my brother and, and Doyle would see each other. And so. So, you know, it was just kind of like that, sort of a, hey, Merry Christmas type of relationship. Um, I don't talk to Jerry much at all, really. I send him uh, text now and then, just like, hey, thinking of you type stuff. Uh, but that's about it. That's 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 about it. Yeah, I wish, not... they would call, I wish they would call me up so that we could play American Psycho and Famous Monsters, maybe work on some more music. But, you know, I know that Jerry just released some solo stuff. What about uh, what about uh, Glenn Danzig? Like, have you had any kind of relationship? Did you uh, did he coach you or was there animosity because you were taking his place in the band that he helped create? In the beginning. He, he didn't want to, you know, when when I was in the band in, in the mid 90s, he didn't want anything to do with the Misfits. He didn't want to talk about them. It was it was 
bitter in his mouth, you know, so there was no conversation. And so I, I was the very, very last thing on his mind. And, 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 Dan, and by the way, Danzig was massive in those days, too. So they, it's not like yeah. he was was just sitting at home and, you know, seeing you guys on TV. It's like, you know, Mother 93 came out around that time and huge. a lot of huge songs. So he's, he had his own thing going on. Right. And I knew that because I'm 47. So when Mother hit on MTV, like, I, you know, I knew I knew Danzig. I, I knew Glenn Danzig. I, I um, you know, I didn't really know the Misfits. So when I put the two together i was just like you know i'm not worthy dude that's that's glenn danzig um but so there's i mean there's no kind i've never i've never met him i've never spoken to him um i've tried a couple of times actually to through his people to get through his his wall to be able to reach him and just have a conversation with him and um and see where it it went if not, nothing at all to just say thank you for a lot of my career and the opportunity um to to you know be a part of something that he built it, it's his brainchild you know the misfits came out of glenn danzig and and when i got in that band i i just always the, i always said to myself just when it comes to the music and when it comes to the the the, the misfits when when i just whatever you do as far as creativity you know creatively would would glenn be proud of it would i be able to articulate it to glenn and he go hmm, okay uh that was always on on my mind but man like i said you know not for nothing i can make these people a lot of friggin' money if somebody would just call me yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I love that. And I know Glenn likes money. Everybody likes money. So you were you were in the Misfits basically five years and we've spent all this time talking about it, but you've done other work in the last 22 years. And do you ever yeah. uh, do you ever, you know, you're in, in, in with this interview talking about that few years there. And do you ever sit back and go, you know, I, I've done things since then. And I, I remembered uh, I, I went to see the band Eve Six one time. And they're, I think, in their early 40s. And they wrote Inside Out, the Heart in a Blender song when they were in their teens. And they cannot do a show without playing that song. Otherwise, there will be a riot. And it's what's interesting is when you have musicians that will write something when they're a teenager and Mm -hmm. or like say for say the Rolling Stones, the Rolling Stones are in their early 20s writing music. And almost 60 years later, they still have to play those songs. Yeah. Uh, do you still get a joy when you play some of whether it is dig up dig up her bones or saturday night or some of those early songs that you wrote and even some of your early solo stuff too uh yeah. and and do you also have they taken on different meanings as time has gone on different meanings different interpretations based on what you were going through in your life at that time uh a little bit some of some of them maybe a little bit but you know, when I when I play, I close my eyes because it's a very very visual experience uh, for me. Um, even when my eyes are open, I, I don't know how to describe it. Only it's it's like emotions that I can see. It's like a dream. It's it's a very um, dreamy state for me w- when I play. Um, so, you know, if I'm playing "Dig Up for Bones" or "Die Monster Die" or "Crying on Saturday Night," I am just like anybody else that hears those songs, where where those songs are are embedded in them i'm catapulted back to well i don't know if i'd be catapulted because you're you're going forward i'm sucked back to the time 
that when I wrote when I wrote that song, like I could see where where I'm sitting. It's clear as day. I can feel the things that I was feeling. It doesn't necessarily make sense, but I can still sense and feel that same emotion, that same thing that was happening, which then catapults me forward. And then I, you know, in doing that and playing that, then I'll, I'll see different things in my mind, maybe things that are in the present or recently past that, that, that become revelations to me in the space of that music. Um, so again, like I said, I'm very, I'm very metaphysical um, in, in, in my music and the interpretation, you know, of it. And I think that that's one of the reasons that's one of the reasons that songs don't get stale for, for, for people that, um, that are, that, that the, their, their, their processes like mine, their, their artistic processes like mine, that that's how it stays fresh. And that's how the songs don't suck either when you when you play them. You know, when you have to play Dig Up Her Bones on tour 120 times, you know, in the span of three and a half months. Like, ah. Yeah. Um, well, because like with uh, stand-up comedy, I know that where some some comedians, is, you know, I've been doing comedy for almost nine years now, that you you almost get to a point where it's karaoke. And you know where it is. You know what the joke, you know where your punchline, you know what's going to hit as long as you have the timing. And yeah. there are some comics that are so emotional and then they keep tinkering with their material and others are almost robotic to the point where they're doing their joke and people are laughing, but in their mind, they're like, let's see the restaurant I want to go to that here. It's closed at 1030. And I think they yeah. stopped serving food at 10. So if I get off stage in the next 22 minutes that I'd be able to make it and get the less. So they're thinking of other things while right. they're doing something else. But then there's others where I was, I was talking to a uh, scooter ward from cold a couple of months ago, and he still also gets emotional. He starts crying when he talks about some of his songs that, uh, and, you, you, I'm thinking to myself, you've played this 5,000 times. You've done this song and you're still, you're in a small venue in Ohio and you're on stage weeping over something yeah. you, that you wrote 20 plus years ago. But that's, that's great art. That, and that's how, that's that emotional attachment. And it does not go unnoticed by the audience. Yeah. And, and there's, there's artistic purity there as, as well. That's like, um, I, I hate to to indicate, you know, a tragedy or, or, or a great loss when you have a, a tragedy or a great loss, for example, in maybe earlier in your life. It's something that you look back on and, and that feeling is always there. It never changes. It never changes. Or, or same with a happy moment. Let's bring it to that, like a gleeful, joyful, un, you know, like the birth of your, a child or something wonderful. You think back on it and you still you the first time you fell in love, you feel that inside and it. And, and it never really changes. Um, there's a purity to that. That's, and that's a wonderful thing that indicate, you know, that's, that's love. That's a, that's such a human thing. Um, it, it just, it supersedes words. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing. And that's, that's what I love about the arts. It's what I love about music is that there's magic in it, that in, in that way that just vibrating air and making these sounds the way that we do, we're able to, get into parts of our brain that are impenetrable by other things and affect us on a, on a level like that. I love that. And, you know, it, it, that kind of leads me into getting, as you've gotten older and you cause a little controversy in the was conservative punk 
and talking just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but you think about how times have changed since then, where you were on John Stewart's show and you were at least able to get a lot of those points across to the point where now in 2022, if you're a musician, come out and say, I love Donald Trump or I'm a conservative, I'm a libertarian, I'm this and that you're you're done for you're you're going to get people who are calling venues and saying do you know you have a nazi who is performing at your venue how dare you and then they have to all these club owners are going to be very fickle and say we can't have the controversy we gotta so then you have to create your own venue you you know you were i I saw you were doing living room shows and everything that it's it's terrible what's going on right now and it, it, it it's really gotten so much worse and you know, you've been in the music scene for, you know, over half a, a quarter century. And it's it's incredible when you see how people just go lock stock with the lockstep with the the regime's narrative. And if you stray from it, especially if you are an entertainer, if you're an actor, you're a musician, you're a, uh, a sports figure, you start just because you're expressing some point of view that's really largely not controversial. And here you are, you start ruffling feathers because you're like, yeah, uh, by the way, I am not one of those people who is a diehard communist who's in, <laughs> who's working in the music industry that you yeah. have, you think for yourself and you have half a brain. And uh, I, I was t- uh, messaging you the other day talking about this. Cause I was listening to your episode of radio deadly on censor.tv and you were talking about the rock against Reagan in the 80s. And I remember rock against Bush in the early 2000s. That's and right. it's, one, it's one thing if you're anti-war. It's one thing if you're like, look, we shouldn't be in Afghanistan. We shouldn't be in Iraq. I'm talking about 2003 when I was going to warp tours and going to do a lot of these shows. But as you said, that it really kind of rang a bell for me was it wasn't just anti-war. It was anti-American. And there was yeah. a lot of very anti-American sentiment that was happening in the early 2000s. And that's bled over into what yeah. we're seeing today. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. A ton of money had was pouring into progressive and liberal causes. Music for America, MoveOn.org, Punk Voter. Um, lots and, and lots of money. Fine. But like you said, it, it wasn't about we weren't having these conversations about should we be at war should we not i mean in 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 a micro sense we were but the overarching sentiment that was being sown within those movements and the literature that you were handed was that america is bad white people are are bad and and America, white people came here and built America upon raping and pillaging and burning and looting and slavery and the, and the military's bad and, and everything is just bad and you have no future and the economy. And it was enraging young people. And the, the, the punk side of things, it was just like, yeah, let's, you know, come to these concerts and we're going to a good old night of, of, of rage. And people didn't even know what they were raging about. They were just angry at something. And so and, and, and then within the echo chamber of, of things, it would just became that 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 culture. And that was fine when there wasn't literally millions of dollars by people like Andy Rappaport. It's at George Soros. Google those names. Uh, again, music for America, move on.org, punkvoter.com, hand over fist. 
and other organizations that were seeking to um, register young people to vote and educate them, quote unquote, yes. educate them. I saw that in the early 90s. You probably remember the uh, that rock the vote 1992. It was it, yeah. it was and Nickelodeon I, I was all that. But but it was much more nonpartisan. It, it wasn't yeah. it, it, it didn't feel like it, it wasn't if you're not going to be part of this, then you are can't be part of anything. Then you get thrown out the gate of the village and you're not allowed back in so that you starve and uh, and, and die of thirst. And so slowly and that's why I was screaming so loudly when the whole conservative punk thing got take got got attacked and I was being attacked because it didn't it, it was no longer necessarily about policy. Like I didn't want I, I wasn't doing media and 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 interested in talking about specific policies. That that wasn't my main concern. My main concern was that people were excluding me from things and blacklisting me from things. And I was being kicked off of social platforms even then on MySpace simply for for being a detracting voice and i said if we i was saying if we keep pumping this rhetoric into young people and you keep doing this to people like me there's get we're going to get to a place where nobody wants to be and people are going to get killed people are going to get hurt people are going to be jailed free joe biggs <laughs> yeah you know and we're at that place now we're at that place well it's it's dissenting opinions where uh, and, and I remember this a couple of years ago, it was four years ago, it was 2018 is when they threw off Alex Jones on Twitter and right. Instagram and Facebook and everything else. And I got and, caught up in that. Yeah. And then L Laura Loomer, Gavin McInnes, and a lot of people on the what they now call the dissident right are people who are weren't really controversial. I mean, yeah, you can make a, a crude joke every so often, but they were influential. Like at the time, they're throwing off Alex Jones off of Twitter. But David Duke and Louis Farrakhan and Richard Spencer, who, uh, you know, they were still on and they were verified, too, I believe. Uh, yet, why is Alex Jones and why is Michael Graves and why are some of these other people who are, you know, Lauren Southern and Faith Goldie and everybody else who's on that uh, that side starts getting demonized? It's because it's playing into this narrative of going up against that regime. It's one of the things I talk about on my podcast all the time is when you have a voice that's going up against the regime, which is what Trump was. Why do you think they love? I mean, 20 years ago, it's, you know, we hate George Bush. He's Hitler. He's a monkey. He's now they love George Bush and they love Dick Cheney and Liz Cheney and everybody. What changed? Well, it's because it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. It's about, pushing forth that narrative. If, if you're not pushing forth the narrative and you're going up against the regime and eh, then you're again, answering to a lot of questions right now. And that's what's been happening. And th that culminated in what I call what the, the leftist crystal knocked, which was January 6th, where that's the worst thing ever. And I'm like a couple of and look, I, if people want to listen to this and they have anything about it, January 6th was not what everybody wants to think it is. And that's why this committee and that's why everything else is really kind of blown up in their faces. Uh, and you happen to be around there on January 6th and, and playing a show. And again, you get caught up on controversy over a year and a half ago. What happened with that? And 
you know, I, I don't know if you're going through any legal situation or if uh, if there's anything that you can't talk about, but you ended up getting caught up in that because you were playing in D.C. that day. Uh, what happened from that? And, you know, is is anything else going to come out uh, for you in that is whole situation? So I, I was there January 5th, January 6th. I was not only there as a, a, a spectator to 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 be part of what was going on, but I was also. Uh, there to perform on the Latinos for Trump stage, which I did. I also sang the national anthem uh, the morning of January 6th. But I got there on January 5th because Roger Stone was speaking, Alex Jones was speaking, Owen Schroyer was speaking. There was a whole litany of of, of people that I wanted to hear speak. Um, I knew that uh, Joe Biggs was going to be there and, and Rufio was going to be there, Enrique Tarrio, uh, and, a, and a bunch of Proud Boys that I had known. Uh, so, uh, and, and I, so I wanted to make the rounds and stop in. I, I have, you know, I know the, the folks over at InfoWars and, um, you know, obviously I, I was in, I am involved with the Proud Boys. Uh, and I wanted to, to walk around and, and take pictures and talk to people and just be part of, of what was, what was happening. Um, so that was January 5th, um, I, I hooked up with some of the Proud Boys and I was going to play a show. We I was actually going to play a show on January 5th. We changed it to doing it on January 6th. I was just going to do an acoustic show for everybody because of w- what happened in December uh, be- before the before January 6th. A bunch of guys went out there and, and people got hurt. People got stabbed. It was very, very violent. Um, one of my roles, not only within Proud Boys and other organizations that I pop into and and play for and speak to is to bring an anchor to these folks and to and to um in in talking about the proud boys in dc january 5th january 6th i wanted to de-escalate a situation i wanted to meet everybody keep them in one spot um you know gather everybody and so that nobody was going out on the street and and just you know, um, uh, interact. And, and so January 6th, the morning of January 6th, I was on stage Latinos for Trump doing our thing. It was, it was, it it was insane. Um, the, the president started to speak. And, uh, so where we were located over by, uh, across the street from the Capitol near the, one of the, the Senate building. So the president was speaking blocks away. It was rainy. It was cold. I was there with my manager, my buddy Arturo, and we had been walking around. And 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 so um, the the president was was late speaking, and I, I I don't know maybe a half hour before he stopped speaking. I think um, I I went. I got Arturo. And I said, "Listen, let's go. Let's head over to where Alex Jones." is going to rendezvous with everybody and and rally. Let's head in that direction to get ahead of the crowd. Which was on the um, other side of the building, right? Yeah, we had to cross we had to cross the street. It wasn't too far for us. So so Arturo Arturo and I leave and we're walking up the sidewalk and I see all these police officers and I can hear the chatter on their radio. I see vehicles with lights on that are flashing. Um, 
I, I'm a situ, you know, like I'm, I'm a situational awareness type of, per, you know, I, my, my senses are heightened. I, I, um, I just felt like something was wrong, man. Like my spidey senses were, were, were tingling. Somebody, I remember somebody came by and asked me what the hell is going on. And I said to him, I don't know, man. I think that, that I, and I said to him, I think that Mike Pence must be in that, uh, in that line of cars, but I knew that wasn't true in my head because, um, what was happening inside the, the, the Capitol. So it just seems strange. So before we cross the street to the Capitol and meanwhile, you know, right over the, on the other side, all hell had, had begun to break loose. I, I turned to our tour and I said, listen, let's just go back to the hotel, uh, and reorganize. Let's, let's get dry. We'll, We'll recharge the batteries on on our camera, and uh, you know we'll 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 see what ha- we'll we'll see what happens in, in a couple of hours, and and we'll we'll head over to uh, where we were. I was going to play that night, um, but I started getting phone calls as we were pulling out of DC, like like you know where are you? What are you doing? And I I, I began to see the the footage actually that was coming. Um, out of the Infowars broadcast, and and saw that all all hell was breaking loose. So, so I got out of DC. Um, it, I I had discernment to not cross that street. If I had crossed the street and kept on going, I I would be I would absolutely be in jail right now, absolutely, um, because of my affiliation with with Proud Boys, with Infowars, with with everything. I I definitely would have been um one of the people caught up in it. Um, uh, but I I wasn't. Thank God. Um, God had helped me or, you know, some sort of divine it, it, because I didn't cross that. I knew something was wrong, man. And I was just, and I turned around. Um, but I, I am going to appear as a witness for the defense in the trial against Joe Biggs, Enrique Terrio, Rufi, uh, uh, Ethan Nordin, Ethan Nordin yeah. and, uh, uh, and, and Ryan Cat. So, um, so yeah, that's as far as, as my legal, you know, troubles if you will go i'm i'm gonna do what the the right thing and i'm i'm gonna go and and appear for those guys because they should not be where they are right now and the treatment that they have had to endure is just is just beyond beyond uh any measure joe biggs is is a double purple heart recipient he he's he's a man of valor and strength and honor and courage. He's a good guy. He's got a young kid at home that he loves. He loves his daughter and his wife, and then and they're and and he's sitting in a, in a jail cell. You know, for, uh, they, they said he 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 pissed. He urinated in the Capitol. It's like yeah, in a urinal. That's what he did. Yes, he used the bathroom inside the Capitol. Okay. January 6th, those committee hearings on the first night that that was televised nationally, those people lied about that man. Uh, Liz Cheney and that and that that officer lady, I forget what her name is, lied, straight up lied about Joe Biggs leading, leading all of these people into the into the Capitol building in that in that way. It's just awful. And I love when they bring up uh, Ray Epps and they said, oh, we can't comment on a uh, at an investigation right now. You comment on everything else, but uh, you mentioned Ray Epps and other Fed agents who are, you know, or, or saying that we need to storm the Capitol. It's just it's it's so ridiculous because when you think of the Proud Boys, 
I I remembered watching the genesis of the Proud Boys, which was at the Anthony Cumia studio. I wasn't there for it, but I would I watched on video at Compound on West 35th and 7th in New York. And Gavin's doing a show and he has a producer who was 24 and was a virgin and would go to Aladdin musicals and not get laid after that. And he's like, my, our mission is to get you laid. And they started playing a song that was from the Aladdin musical. It got cut from the movie called Proud of Your Boy. So they made this ridiculous group where yeah. you all it was all it was was like the water buffaloes from the Flintstones or the, you know, from the honeymooners and everything. It was it was a drinking club. It was like the Knights of Columbus. You all you, everybody got together and you start punching each other unless you name five breakfast cereals. It was that's all it was. And then it turned into Gavin would do these speeches with Ann Coulter and um, you know, and, and Milo and others in 2017, 2016, 2017, and realized that the security around it was less than stellar. So the Proud Boys were saying, hey, guys, you know, hey, Gavin, we'll we'll help. You know, let's just go. We'll, we'll protect you. You know, if we need to get into a fight, if any of these Antifa morons come around and and then we'll go out and have a couple of drinks. That's how it started. And then it became where, uh, you know, the, the poor boys, uh, Joe Biden's talking about it and Trump has to mention it. And I'm like, again, this was the drinking club that started at the Anthony Cumia studio five years ago. And now all of a sudden it it's was, being mentioned in presidential debates. It, it was the only group of 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 people um, or the, the leading group organization, along with you know, like Patriot Prayer and, and other groups like that that were willing to push back against Antifa and BLM. And, and um, yeah, uh, it's 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 awful because it's so transparent. And, and that's the thing, like you said, every, the jig is up. I mean, everybody knows that the whole January 6th thing um, is, is not the narrative that is coming out of uh, our institutions of government, the power structure, if you will. Everybody, and I say everybody, but a lot of people, many, many, many people, and each day that, that goes by, more and more people are, are, are waking up to what's, what's going on. They, they know that something is not right, and something is not right, obviously. And, and it's this, you know, to, if you're uh, – um, you know, if you don't know anything about World War II and Hitler, his main goal was the Ubermensch, this like, you know, super race of human beings, a super race of human beings that that uber rich, powerful people are trying to um, bring about. They're trying to be the, the master race on this planet. And me and you and all your audience and most of the people on planet Earth are not in that plan. And it's being ramped up. It's just being ramped up. Yeah, they're you making know, it. They're, they're talking about making us eat bugs and showering once a month. And you're saying, well, what does this right. have anything to do with? And here's my my ultimate thoughts on January 6th is that, uh, as Gavin calls it, the meandering that it, I, I would admit it. It would be a horrible look if for mm. an entire year and or, that the media not only allowed rioting because of in the what we call the summer of George after George Floyd and all of this other stuff in, in these major cities burning down and CNN on TV saying there's fiery but mostly peaceful protests and every major city had massive 
violent protests, which turned into riots, which turned into just absolute chaos. And you have the media allowing it. And not only that, you had the government and people in the CDC and the WHO and everything saying, well, you know, uh, COVID is a uh, dangerous virus, but racism is even more. Racism is a public health crisis right now. And they allowed this to go on. Yet at the same time, then you have people upset about a very uh, an election that had serious problems that led up to it. And then the problems that on election night, it 2000 mules, everything. Um, and in that time between early November and early January of a lot of the fraud and a lot of these cases that started popping up and people were upset. So it was in 2020. Yeah, it's OK to protest. And you know what? If, if somebody throws a brick through a window, that's just some people have different ways of protesting and making their voice right. heard. Then we right. move. Then we turn the calendar to 2021. And somebody, a, a, a grandma with cancer who walks between the ropes in the Capitol building uh, is going to prison. And right. we're like, yo, no, you know what? Not everybody has the right to protest and make their voice heard. And ultimately, what it comes down to is the Capitol is the church for for leftists. It's not like leftists who are atheists don't believe in they, they just don't believe in God or organized religion, but they believe their organized religion is the state. And yes. right. when you see people attacking the state, the Capitol, that's the way a Christian would when they see a church being attacked. And it was it, it was again, January 6th. I, yeah, it, there were a lot of problems that happened. And I think a lot of it was ushered by the feds. But yeah, you know, if it's amazing. <laughs> Nobody, or not nobody, but nobody in the January 6th commission, for example, is asking, well, wh why weren't why weren't there enough people to to um, to protect the Capitol? You have something very important happening inside. You knew that there was going to be tens, hundreds of thousands of people showing up. There was five at that breach site, that first breach site with Ray Epps and, and all these people. There were five police officers against there was tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people behind them. Like, so you're going to put five cops there and then there's going to be, you know, five cops another 500 yards away with some like stupid little league plastic fence. Like, who made that decision? Why are we talking about that? We're, no, we're talking about Joe Biggs leading people into the Capitol and doing, it's nuts. This is the, it's the same, all, all of this, all, all of this is back to punk voter and why punk voter was bad. And it's the same thing with, with anything else. That's what justice has those scales, right? So you got punk voter, like, you know, and, and, and no other way to counter that information or, 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 or those those facts that are giving to people to educate them, and 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 all the same thing with January sixth. There's no cross examination. None none of none of those things that we literally built our society and our our republic um on. It's those the approved have, talking have points. That's that's what bothers right. me is that it it's and I talked about this on my podcast yesterday about with Brian Stelter from CNN that he, he yeah. got shown the door, his reliable sources. And the whole thing is, I, I look back to Jon Stewart, right? Actually, right around the time you were on the show back in 03, 04, he goes on Crossfire 
And he starts chiding Paul Begala and Tucker Carlson by saying this this show is what's wrong with America and this show is what's wrong with the media and body and politics. And people cheered him on by saying, yeah, we don't need two sides bickering about things. And then maybe at the end of the show, we agree to disagree and shake hands with Jon Stewart, who's, I think, one of the worst people in America, because what he was talking about was. No, no, no. We can't have a Republican and a Democrat come together and find some kind of common ground. We need one approved talking point, And then everybody else is castigated outside that Overton window. And that's what we've had during COVID was we can't have Jay Bhattacharya. We can't have, um, you know, anybody who's mentioning anything related to the efficacy of masks and uh, the ridiculousness of what social distancing was or that these vaccines have not been time tested and are not working. And uh, if if you get these vaccines, you're not going to get covid. Well, then everybody got covid. And yet there's no repercussions for Fauci or Burks or Walensky or anything because there is one approved talking point. And for people who don't look at the, the real numbers and they don't really dig and they don't really think for themselves, those NPCs, they just go along with what is being told. And that's what the one big problem is, is the flow of information only comes from one source. And it's a it's a sewage pipe. Yes. And it's manipulated uh, in in a it's 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 yeah it's manipulated and it and it's controlled uh by huge organizations and behavioral scientists and and um people's naivete and ignorance and good nature are certainly taken advantage of one look needs to look no further than once again nazi germany and and the levers of uh, of actions that were taken that were taken and, and the chain of events that led to the Holocaust and, and the destruction of the Republic. Yeah. Um, the killing of right. Millions and millions and millions of people on an industrial scale, for no rhyme or, or reason. Um, you know, people often say, you know, well, how, like how, how, how could those, how could those guards at Auschwitz be doing the things that they, they are doing? Well, how can how can the guards in 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 DC's Gitmo there in Washington DC be doing the things that they're doing? Following um, orders, right? Just following orders. I don't know if it was Plato or Socrates said that those who control the stories control society, and and there's there's something to that, and that's why the dissemination of information, the free flow of information, um, no matter what it is, and and freedom of speech. Is, is such an important part of not being sucked into what every other society and and collection of people on the planet have been sucked into in the past. Authoritarianism, oppression, this tyrannical monster that swallows everything. And all of these things, how do you get there? Is manipulation, lies, mm-hmm. deceit. And the father of lies... The native language he speaks, Lucifer, is is lies, and that's where it all goes back to: is this is this epic struggle of of good and evil, truly, truly. It's it's funny because it, when you finally have people on the right who fight back, because the the right has lost nearly every culture war for sixty years. And when you finally have someone like DeSantis or Trump or Marjorie Taylor Greene of, of people who are Matt Getz who are fighting 
back and actually putting policy. It's not just one of those where we're shaking our fists like we're Jim Jordan or you're uh, some of these other politicians and they don't, don't end up doing anything. You need to be pragmatic. The problem is the left has had this uh, this head start for 100 years. So it's it, it's tough to face these foot soldiers when you're kind of changing yeah. things the last couple of years. It's hard to really put. I mean, this has been a long game of I mean, it's like it's like in football where you decide to to go with the run instead of passing down the field. It's like, look, we're going to drag this out as long as we can and have every institution that gets flooded and and we don't learn our history. I mean, what I mean, I. Every time, every comparison to somebody is, oh, everybody's Hitler, everybody's Hitler. It's like, do we did we not learn about Stalin in school? Did we not learn about Mao? Oh, of course we didn't. We didn't learn about the dangers of communism that That's 60 right. million uh, killed and, you know, from the Cultural Revolution, everything right. with Mao and, and Stalin, Mussolini, everything. It's just we have this right. It's and that's the control of the, the information. It starts. First of all, a lot of it starts at home, but a lot of it starts in the schools. And when you're not teaching proper history and you're not teaching critical thinking, you're going to have these blue haired uh, nose ring, uh, you know, they them pronouns in their bios that are controlling right. what's going on, the flow of information. And that's why a lot of my work like I, on, on Radio Deadly. Uh, and and in that sort of sphere of things is is the culture war. And what you're saying is is a hundred percent accurate. the the destruction of the education system or the weaponization of the education system by eliminating things or teaching things that that are in in the norm um, are all part and parcel to where we've gotten. but also we've gotten here because in the early 2000s, you had people like, you know, the three biggest donors to liberal progressive causes that affected you and I were Andy Rappaport, his wife and George Soros. These people all got together and figured out that the Democratic Party was basically being annihilated. It was over with in the early 2000s. The conservatives, the Republican Party were beating their ass that that the the, the nationalist feeling of of was really was really um popular and and taken hold because the towers had just came down right 2001 september 11 2001 so there's this sweeping wave of enthusiasm and love for america and our country and so these people came in and they poured hundreds of thousands of dollars millions of dollars into the culture and all of these other organizations popped up like you said for the long march for the long march and that's when um uh, um, like human rights campaign and all of these um, pro-abortion, anti-Christian, anti-white, all of these things started to pop up and and have a and really it's Antifa and 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 the the BLM mindset that has that has taken over that that uh, you know that the revolutionary side of the. So now you have these masses of people. They just want to destroy things. They don't even know why they're destroying it, you know. Um, so so one needs to, to really look at the early 2000s and do research about, like I said, Music for America, Punk Voter, MoveOn.org, and you really see the genesis of, of how our culture was, was taken over. And that's why we need to, me and you and, and other people that are, that are 
I hate saying on 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 this side of things, but we want to build things, and it's we're a, well, reaching it's out the to side people of freedom. in That's a what spirit it is. of love. It, I, I think it, because when we say this side, it's not a political side. It's the side of freedom. It's like I'm yeah. on this. I'm on the yeah. side that didn't want you thrown out of your job a year ago because you didn't show Amen. a proof of a vaccine. I don't want right. you thrown out of your job because you didn't wear a mask at work. I don't want you thrown out of a job uh, because, you know, uh, whatever your political views or anything. And that goes all across the board. I'm pro freedom. You're pro freedom. People listening to this are pro freedom. If you're somebody who. We're saying last year that uh, that uh, people who are unvaccinated should be thrown out of civil society and that you shouldn't have a job and this and that uh, or you shouldn't have a social media account because you're spreading misinformation and disinformation. If that happens, you're not on the side of pro freedom. And therefore, we are. That's when you talk about national divorce. That's all we could do a whole other podcast about national divorce of we're not going to see eye to eye anymore. There is no common ground by some of these people. If you are not on the side of pro freedom, I, 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 we have nothing in common there because that should be the baseline towards everything. We can disagree on certain policies or certain social issues, whether you're uh, pro AR-15 or anti, whatever it is, we can we can work through that. But if you're not on the side of pro freedom, we're not. We can't have a civil conversation. Unfortunately, I'd love to, but we can't. It's amazing. Yeah, unfortunately, we've gotten to we've gotten to a place where uh, a lot of the opposition, when 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 being opposed instead of us just having a disagreement about form, process, whatever, our opposition, much the same as the Nazis saw the Jews and everybody else who who wasn't blonde hair, blue eyed, um, we are deemed as morally corrupt. Um, you know, the, uh, what, did, what did, what did, um, Clinton call the, the irredeemables, right? We're, yes. The deplorables. We can't be redeemed. Right. Yeah. We, we have no soul. So, and, and because we're white, um, it just so happens that even if we don't think that we're being racist, we actually are being racist. And so we're morally broken. We don't have souls at all. We are uh, we're undesirable. So what do you do with the undesirables? How how are we going to what are we going to do with the, these people who won't get that? Oh, they just won't get vaccinated. And now they're they're hurting other people. Oh my God! And they're showing up to school boards because these parents of these people are showing up to school boards, and they're hanging American flags outside, and they don't think that my child can just decide tomorrow that he's a girl when clearly he's a he's a boy. What are we going to do? And just like the propaganda against the Jews, to where people actually believe that they were monsters and that they were, you know. They were lower than dogs. They believed that to be truth. It wasn't just it, it was it, they believed that there's a lot of people that believe that their opposition, you and I, are broken. And if they are able to um, deprogram you know, us online, like kill us online, like I was lynched online. I watched people burn their records and, and have a funeral. <laughs> for me online if they're able to, it's like a practice area if they're able to do that on, online in huge masses i know that 
that they could march me, you, Owen Schroyer, Alex Jones, Gavin out into the middle of the street along with Joe Biggs and everybody else, shoot us, and they won't think twice about it, throw us in a pit. Because they're on the good side, and you're in we're evil. And it's, on ju- the good side. it's justified, and that, it's the Michael Malice right. quote. They want you dead, but they'll settle for your submission. That's I, I love that line. Yeah. I, I don't want to take up too much of your time and uh, I really appreciate and I will get the, all your plugs and everything coming up. But the, I guess the last question I want to ask you is that it, it, it it's a, and it's a question that kind of rounds up this entire episode from music to politics and social issues is uh, for me being a comedian, I in today's world, it's just I don't, I don't go on stage doing politics. I'll go up there and I'll tell dick jokes and everything and it just makes p- people laugh. I'm up there for a few minutes. It's not not that big of a deal. But when you're in music and you're somebody who is very emotional and you put your heart into the lyrics, uh, like when I saw you last year, I knew about your politics and everything, but you didn't get political. Have you allowed your politics or have you found a creative way to inject? I don't want to say inject because it sounds so leftist of me to say that, but uh, putting forth your political and social views into your music, is there a fine line between that or how are you able to do that or do you just avoid it altogether? I find creative ways to to add my worldview to all of my music. It's American Psycho, Famous Monsters is laden with that. Everything pretty much that I've done is is laden with that. I'm just able to do it in in a way that it's not just in your face. And it's not a way – I'm not going out into the world necessarily trying to convince people one necessary one way or another. You know what I mean? Like I'm not out there evangelizing. I'm giving my opinion. I'm, I'm giving, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm asked, Uh, but you know, I, I think at the end of the day, everything that I do comes from a place of, of, of pure humanity. I I think I I have maybe too much empathy and too much compassion. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that the Beatles got it right. John Lennon got it right when he said that all we need is love. Um, but in order to get there, that just doesn't, you know, that doesn't happen. You know, just the, the love just doesn't fall from the sky. We as humans, we have to speak to each other. We have to interact with each other. We have to be peaceful and, and loving with each other and, and listen to one another. Um, and we have to build things. And um you know, the bad stuff that has come up against me, it, it, it can't touch me because my music, again, like you say, you listen to it and it's not it's not like protest music and it, it's not it's not overtly political. It's just it's art is what it is. It really is. Great art is and, left up to interpretation. I, I said that uh, I went to see Rage Against the Machine a couple of weeks ago and someone said, why would you go see them when you know what their beliefs are and everything? And I said, well, if you're talking about great art and I hear a song like freedom and he, and Zach DeLaRocca is yelling freedom. Okay. Maybe he's talking about abortion rights or whatever, but then I can interpret it a different way too. It's up to the, that's what great art is. It should be left up to interpretation instead of getting bludgeoned over the head with it. Yeah. I I love that. I I love that, that you just said that. And and I'm able to, um, experience music and, and art in that way too, you know? Um, yeah. So, I mean, it really comes down to, um, 
you know, I, I nothing that has been said about me or, or any of the detractors, the negative stuff um, will, will ever really hold up against my life and my legacy, because anyone who's willing to just take the time to say, all right, let me just look into this guy a little bit. You spent 15, 20 minutes looking into into me. Um, you it's it's easy to to see that that I've I've really devoted my myself and I and I have and I am I devote myself to to a higher cause uh, and I'm really trying to build people up uh, and 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 um like the kids say be kind uh, I'm I'm a you know because because things really are so bad and I, I hate because I'm always the positive guy uh, but things. In in the world, like our world, truly is a is a, is a disaster. It's a friggin' mess. And I have young kids. I have I have a thirteen year old. I have a ten year old. I have a five year old. Um, and I'm, uh, yeah. So scary times. But, scary uh, times. But there's there's people at least uh, nowadays we have our. Are some outlets before they get banned, uh, like this podcast or like uh, being on censored.tv radio deadly that that's yours. Uh, uh, and then you are, are you going out on tour again pretty soon? Yeah, I'm going back out on the road end of, end of September. Uh, again, a lot of the private shows I'll be out in Los Angeles at the whiskey. I'll be at the hard rock cafe in Pittsburgh, a brass mug down in Tampa, Florida, uh, but most of them are, are are private shows. Yeah, well, one of these times I'll have to bring you bring you over back to Ohio and uh, have a have a nice private show here or or a public show. I could get you guys uh, in some way. Uh, we could probably talk off the air, but and get and get some of those uh, folks with the Gravediggers Union because I'm a part of it. Awesome. I, actually, I have the shirt. I, I don't know why I didn't pull it out, but uh, I have one of your shirts there on the the website. But uh, uh, awesome. Michael, this this has been uh, fantastic. I really appreciate talking to you and getting a chance to talk to you a little longer because there was like a long line of people. And I got a quick picture with you and just I said hi and great show and everything. And I'm like, I'd love to talk to him. But there's like 80 people who are also standing in line that wanted to talk. And I didn't want to be that guy that holds up the line. So, uh, so oh. it's great to have this, you know, hour plus to talk to you. And I can't wait to post this and let uh, uh, and, and just just get the word out and just spread the love uh, that that you are putting forth and your art and uh, that's that's what it goes in. We're you know a lot of this is not out of anger that we're talking. We're just it's a lot of frustration. But luckily that there are people out there like like yourself that is putting out good art and also doing so for for people who really need it. Especially the you know Joe Biggs and uh, and Ethan Nordine and others that are really suffering and that's why you really went to january you were out there in january 5th and 6th to kind of bring some joy to some people who've been so pent up with frustration yeah man for sure i appreciate the time anytime you know you want to do this again you just let me know there's a you know we we could we could pick several topics that, oh, yeah. that, we, that we hit tonight and and probably talk for hours about it um yeah yeah Excellent. I encourage everybody to stay positive. I have to encourage myself to stay positive. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know. I trust me. I that get, gets frustrating, but uh, yeah, no. But hey, having a good conversation like this is, uh, I think, what is much needed here in our society. Yeah. Instead of uh, 
echo chamber. It, it's nice to be in an echo chamber for a little bit, but it's also nice to kind of just talk about things and put them out in the open. And, and, and of course, until we get banned on social media and <laughs> whenever that happens too. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, Hey, I, I, again, I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Michael. Yeah, man. Anytime. I'll talk to you soon.